Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. I don't know about you, but I'm a person who's drawn to stories. I love stories. I love telling stories. I love reading stories. I love watching stories. And uh, when you get together with friends, it's easy to start telling old stories because stories have a way of orienting you to a particular time in place. So maybe you're together with friends from college or friends from high school, and you begin to tell stories. And before you know it, it's almost as if you've been brought back, you know, for some of us, you know, 20, 25 years, uh, you're brought back a further period of time and you begin to remember what life was like during that time. And it connects us with other people, other memories, other times and places. And I believe that this is why movies are so powerful. Um, And as a kid, I loved Star Wars. Any other Star Wars people in the room? What is the greatest Star Wars movie ever? You can say this out loud. It's The Empire Strikes Back, and if you say anything other than that, you're wrong. Um, But every time I watch The Empire Strikes Back, I am brought back to what it means to be a little kid. Like I am brought back to that moment where I'm watching and and I'm you know watching you know Darth Vader and and, and Luke and and him finding out that that's his father. If you haven't watched the movie, he's like forty something years old. I'm sorry if I spoiled it, Um, but you're, you're brought back to that moment. And, and there's a moment in the movie that was, is really powerful, and it's where Luke has gone to meet Yoda, you know, the little green, you know, elf-looking fellow. And, uh, and he meets Yoda, and Yoda's going to teach him the way to be a Jedi. And there's a scene where, where Luke has crashed his plane, his X-wing, into the lake, and he's trying to figure out how to get it out. There are no tow straps and tow trucks. You can't get it out, no AAA. And, and so he's sitting there, and, and he's looking to Yoda, and Yoda's trying to teach him how to use the force to kind of mind-will this plane out of the lake, out of the swamp, and it begins to bubble and then starts to sink, and Luke just gives up, and he says, you want the impossible. And then Yoda sticks out his little green hand, and all of a sudden, he lifts the X-wing out of the water and lays it on dry ground, and, and Luke is just dumbfounded. He's watching this, and he can't believe what he has seen, and Yoda says something that's just completely profound. He says, you have to unlearn what you have learned. You have to unlearn what you have learned. Now, that's a powerful statement. And it applies to our text today because when it comes to believing that God can do the seemingly impossible, you're going to have to unlearn what you've learned. And this is the reason that Jesus says that we have to have faith like a child because children believe that God can do anything. Children believe that God can do whatever he wants to do. They don't have to suspend belief to believe this. They believe it. They believe that God can heal. They believe that God can raise the dead. They believe that God can do this. And if you've ever heard the prayer of a child, they pray like God is going to answer that prayer. They believe in God's power. But over time, as adults, we often believe that we come to God and his word and the things that he promises, almost like we have to suspend reality for a couple hours, like we're watching a movie. When you step in to watch a movie as an adult, you're suspending reality to believe that this is real for just a moment. And sometimes we come to the scriptures that way, but yet we stop believing in the miraculous spiritual things that the Bible says that God can do. Now, I'm not talking about using God like a genie. I'm not talking about praying like it's a superpower that you're going to kind of mind will something into being. I'm not talking about if you pray for a Lamborghini or $10 million that God's going to give it to you. That's not what I'm talking about. 
But so many of us come to the Bible as skeptics. And we come to the Bible, and some, for some people, a big hurdle to believing in Christianity is you look at the miracles that Jesus performed, and you're like, that can't really happen. We live in a scientific world. That, that stuff doesn't happen. That can be scientifically explained away. I mean, you're telling me that God parted a sea? He had two big walls of water, and an entire nation of two million people just walked through it? You're telling me that God could take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people? You're telling me that God could raise people from the dead? And we, it's easy to come to that and say, that's childish and that's silly, and you have to suspend everything you believe to believe that. But have you ever wondered why you believe that, if you believe that? Have you ever wondered why we sometimes think that God can't do the miraculous? Why it's so hard to believe that God, the Bible, what the Bible says about what God did and that God will do what he promised to do is because the world and your experiences have conditioned you to believe that they're impossible. To believe that these things are totally impossible for God to do. And we live in a world where we have been taught that the only thing that is real is what's right in front of you. Charles Taylor wrote a book called A Secular Age, and he said we live in the age of eminence, meaning that what is eminent, what is right in front of you, what you can taste and touch and smell and hear and feel is what's real. If you can't touch it with your five senses, it's not reality. It's something beyond us. There's, and, and with this worldview that every single one of us have drunk, drank in, there's nothing really that's transcendent. You can't truly know anything beyond what you can touch. And what this has done is it's led us to a place where all of us are incredibly individualistic. Because if I'm the only person who can determine what's real, then I'm the only person that I can trust. And the more we discover this and the more independent we become, the more we want something greater than ourselves. We want to experience wonder. We want to believe the impossible. We want to believe that there's something greater than what we can touch. And that's why when you're out in nature or you're at a concert and you're singing or you're at a sporting event and you're joining in in the chorus of, of booze or the chorus of, of praise and cheers that you believe for a moment you're a part of something bigger than yourself. But what Charles Taylor says is that if we don't believe in something transcendent beyond us, we have nowhere to direct that longing for meaning that we are constantly looking for something to give our hope that it could bring about the impossible. But what if what you're looking for was found in something greater, something transcendent, something absolute, and something outside of yourself? What if God could do the impossible and every longing of the human heart is found in him? We are going to have to unlearn how we see the world to get there. Unlearn what we imagine to be possible and this is the same thing that Sarah is facing and Abraham in Genesis 18. Sarah has been conditioned to believe that as a barren woman, she was cursed. As a barren woman, unable to have children, that she was worthless. And it had been drilled into her mind for 90 years, for her entire life, that 90-year-olds don't have babies. And God asks her a question, and it's, it's the type of question that's meant to cause her and you and I to rethink everything and it's verse 14. Verse 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard can literally be translated as wonderful. Is there anything too wonderful for God to do? 
Is there anything that's impossible for God? And like Sarah, that we've been conditioned by the world to think that miracles don't happen. We've been conditioned by the world to think that our importance comes from our job and that it comes, our value comes from what other people think. And it's easy for you and I to get disillusioned and begin to ask, like, can God ever work in my life? Can I ever change? Will it ever get better? Will I ever see God at work? And this is how we become disillusioned people. But I want us to look this morning at how God changes disillusioned people. God changes disillusioned people to wonder at him, and he does this firstly by engaging us relationally. God engages us with a relationship. Look at verse 1 in chapter 18. It says, and the Lord appeared to him. Now, this is interesting. God has appeared to Abram. He doesn't just speak to Abram. He appears to Abram, and he does so, it says, to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you may remember that the oaks of Mamre was a place in uh, Genesis 13 at the very end in verse 18, where, uh, where Abraham and his family moved and set up an altar and they worshiped God there. So they worship the Lord in this place. And so it's a place that's familiar to Abraham. It's a place that has been a place of, of reverence and waiting and worship. So he's placed himself in a place to wait upon the Lord. And we see that God appears to him as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, likely, Abraham would have had his flocks with him, his herds, and he's taking them to a place that's shady. He's sitting out in the middle of the, of the desert heat, and he's waiting for some relief. In verse 2, It says, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, behold, tells us, no, that this was miraculous. He didn't see them coming. He didn't see them coming from a way off. He didn't see that, you know, he he had no real warning sign, no doorbell, no security camera, nothing let him know that they were coming. It's a little bit like when my children were little and I felt a presence in my room and I opened my eyes and there were two-year-old little eyeballs and they were asking for oatmeal at three in the morning. That's what it kind of feels like, like they show up out of nowhere. They show up out of nowhere, and Abraham likely, as he sees this, doesn't realize that this is God. He doesn't understand that this is God and two angels with him, and we take this for granted because we're looking at the story from above it. It's like we're watching a movie. It's like when you're watching a horror movie, and you know that the killer is behind the door, and you're like, don't go up the stairs, don't open the door. That's kind of what we're doing. We're looking at this and saying, don't you see that this is God? but we take for granted that Abraham's living this in real time. And the text makes this clear that Abraham doesn't quite understand what's going on by when it says this. It says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now that sounds like he realizes it's God. But if you understand the culture and you understand the context This is really just nomadic hospitality. The word, oh Lord, there isn't the word for God. It's like someone you see as a superior. Someone you see as of having great honor or value. It was an honor in the ancient world to have someone come to your home and to be able to serve them. And so this is, there's no Trader Joe's, there's no Airbnb. So he offers food and water, an opportunity to rest and to clean themselves up. And he honors them as, as honored house guests. He said, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Allow me the honor of serving you. He brings them water, verse 4. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I mean, we, we take for granted that we have closed-toed shoes. Most of the shoes there would have been more like a sandal, and you would collect a lot of mud and dust and some other unseemly stuff on your feet. And so they're having their feet washed as a sign of, of being cleansed. In verse 5, he, he wants to be really hospitable. He says, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself, And now, morsel is kind of like in quotation marks, because if you look a little bit further, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it says in in verse uh, uh, verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. This isn't a morsel. This is like saying that each one of them is about to get seven loaves of bread, seven cakes for each of them to eat. And if you have like an Italian grandma who's just like constantly shoving food down your throat, that's a little bit of what's going on here. It's like, you're going to eat this little morsel of food. It's not a big deal. I've been slaving away in the kitchen for nine hours. Like they just want, he, he wants them to eat. We see that this, uh, this abundance of food, we see in verse seven, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young men who prepared it quickly. He's giving them the finest cut of meat. Verse 8, he gives them curds and milk and a calf, and they're prepared and set before them. And we see that he stands there. He's standing watching them eat, and he wants to make sure that every little detail has been attended to. He wants them to enjoy it. And so for us, if you grew up in the West, this is hard for us to really understand what's going on. This is the ultimate picture of hospitality. Amy and I had the opportunity to serve a family uh, from Afghanistan last year uh, who were refugees, who were fleeing uh, as, as the Taliban was taking over. And uh, they came here, we were able to serve with a group from Park Street. And, um, and we were amazed at how they wanted to be hospitable to us. So we would go to their house and we, or we go to where they were staying and they would just, there was, there was no getting out of it. I mean, I remember one time I ate prior on the way to not eat. And they're like, no, 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 you're gonna eat. And they sat there and they will watch you eat. They will make sure that you have enough. And they will scrape more onto your plate to make sure that you have enough. And they're like, you're, you're, you're too skinny. I'm like, you don't, you know, I know. And like, like, like I, I'm full. Like, I, I can't eat anymore. And it's so good. They want you to understand the, the, the beauty of, of how good this blessing is. They want to make sure that they enjoyed it. What, what do we take away from this? Well, on one hand is, Abraham's hospitality is something we should exemplify. The church should be the most hospitable place on earth. We pray that as you come here on Sunday, you feel welcome and you feel warmth. And we spend money on coffee and snacks because we want people to feel like they're welcome here. We want to have a smiling face. As Christians, we should welcome people into our homes because it's a visible picture of God's love to be hospitable to other people. In fact, Hebrews 13 even mentions this as a picture of hospitality when it says that we should show hospitality to strangers because you may be entertaining angels unawares. And now the point there is not that you should be looking out for angels everywhere you go, but that we should be hospitable because we may be doing it for the sake of the Lord. But I don't want you to miss the main point of this. If anyone should recognize God, it's Abraham. But he doesn't. He doesn't realize that this is God. And what this tells us is that you can go to church and you can do all the churchy things and you can do all the religious things and you can miss God. You can come here on a Sunday morning and we can mouth lyrics, we can recite confessions, we can listen to sermons, we can talk to other people, and we can miss what God is doing amongst us. 
We can miss meeting God personally. We can't miss the fact here that God chose to have a meal with a person. God comes to Abraham and he chooses to have a meal with him. This is the only time in the Old Testament where we see God pictured as having a meal with a human. This is a picture of acceptance and of fellowship. And we see this multiple times in the New Testament through who? Through Jesus. Who did Jesus welcome to his table? The prostitute, the tax collector, the sinner, and the outcast. He received all of them as this visible picture and tangible picture of grace of who's welcome to come to God's table. And Tim Chester puts it this way. He says that Jesus is handing out God's party invitations. They read, you are invited to my party in the new creation. Come as you are. What does God offer by eating with Abraham? He offers himself. He offers relationship. In Revelation 3, when we see the picture of Jesus knocking at the door, it's, that's, that's not, oh, we often think of that as knocking at the door as, as receiving Jesus as your Savior. But it's actually a picture of receiving Jesus in for fellowship. Because the very next words, it says that he may come in and dine with us, eat with us. The first way that God heals our unbelieving hearts is to give us himself, to offer relationship by grace, access to God. And so what Abraham sees for a brief moment, we are offered in an abiding way through Jesus. Because Jesus became a person in every way and gave himself for us so that we could know him and know God. And for all of our questions, all of our skepticism, all the things that we come to the Bible and we don't understand, it really boils down to this. Tim Keller does a great job talking about this in his book, Reason for God. Is did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? And did Jesus raise again? Did Jesus live? Did he die and did he raise again? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then all of our questions, all of our skepticism, all of our wonders can fall underneath that. Because if God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to answer our questions. If he can do that, he can do anything. So God answers us relationally. But secondly, we see that God reveals his work. He deals with our disillusion by revealing what he's done. And in verse 9, he begins to show Abraham that he's a little more than he thought he was. It says, they said to him in verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. Now, this should be clue number one for Abraham, that something is different than he expected. Why is that? Because if you look back at chapter 17, verse 16, we see that God said to Abraham, he gives Sarah a new name. Sarah, who she'd been known as for 90 years, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. So these strangers know her name. They call her by her new covenant name. No one had told her that. So either these guys are creepy and they're stalkers, or by calling her by a new name, they know who she truly is. And that comforts us because God knows you and I in the same way. He knows us intimately. Matthew chapter 6 says that our anxiety can go away. We can have peace because God knows every hair upon our heads. That he knows our name. And so these, these people, these men, they, they know Sarah. They know that she used to be called Sarai. They know all of her doubts, her disillusion, her despair, but they also know that she has a new name, which means she has a new future and has received grace from God. 
And if this doesn't clue in Abraham, if Abraham doesn't seem to get it after this, verse 10 really drives it home. The Lord said, now notice it shifts from plural to singular. The Lord, one, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's the exact same words that the Lord said to Abraham in chapter 17. You're going to have a son. And all of a sudden, it dawns on Abraham. This is God. I just ate a meal with God. I don't know if you've ever met a celebrity and then realized you met a celebrity afterward. Uh, And if you look on social media all the time, Tony Hawk, no one knows who Tony Hawk is, the great skater, Tony Hawk. People will be looking at Tony Hawk and say, you look like somebody familiar. Have you ever heard heard of Tony Hawk? You kind of look like him. And he, he always plays along, like, yeah, I get that all the time. Uh, I can imagine he's sitting there, like, seeing a celebrity that you don't know who they are, and all of a sudden it dawns on him. This is God. This, this is God at work. God meets us in desperate places and desperate situations when it's hard to believe and reminds us of his work. And he shows us that it is him who has been working the entire time. He reminds Abraham and Sarah that he had promised this son to them. He reminds Israel later that he had brought them out of Egypt, that he had helped Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph over and over again, that he toppled walls in Jericho, that he overcame great odds, that he had rescued them in the past, and that he would rescue them in the future. And he reveals this work as if to say to us, you can trust me. You can trust me. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not sure what, where you're at right now or what you're wrestling with. Maybe the light bulb is going off and you're going, wait a minute, it's God who brought me through that. It wasn't my circumstances changing. It wasn't a streak of good luck. It wasn't because I just got it all together. It's actually God who sustained me through that season. He's trying to get you to see that he wants a relationship with you. Maybe you're at the point of disillusionment where you took that new job and it's just not everything you thought it was going to be. You, you have that roommate and just, you know, things aren't as rosy as when you sign the lease. You're just frustrated and you just don't know why. God addresses our disillusion and our doubts by showing us who he is and what he has done for us because he wants you to trust him. And it may have been a long season of waiting, a long season of praying, a long season of struggling, Maybe you feel like you're in a darker place than you've ever been, and God is calling you to hang on because he is a God who works in your favor. He does this because he wants to create in us a faith like a child, believing with wonder that he can do whatever he wants. So lastly, we see that God recaptures your wonder. He deals with your disillusionment by recapturing your worship, by recapturing your awe, by turning your eyes towards him. And so here we see that Abraham doesn't say anything else. He keeps his mouth shut for the rest of the passage. He's speechless. He wonders at that. And so then we see God shift his attention to Sarah. God is seeking to recapture Sarah's wonder. And we see at the end of verse 10 that Sarah has been witness to all of this because she's eavesdropping. It says she was listening at the tent door behind him. And all of this is just too unbelievable for Sarah. It's so unbelievable that in verse 12, she laughs. And as you know, not all laughs are the same. This isn't a, someone told me a funny joke laugh. This isn't a ha-ha laugh. This isn't a joyful laugh. This is the type of laugh so you don't cry. 
This is the type of laugh from a person who's grown so cynical that they don't know what else to do. They just kind of throw their hands up and scoff and go, yeah, right. Like God's actually going to do that. Like that's actually going to happen. And if you're a person who really struggles with cynicism, I guarantee at some point you were an optimist because cynical people are just optimists who have had their world crushed. She's completely given up hope. She's saying, there's no way this is possibly going to happen. And you can tell this by the words that she says. She says, after I am worn out, after I'm worn out, after I've got nothing left, after I'm completely spent, now God's going to act. We see in verse 11, where she says, this, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was through menopause. I mean, this, this is just not going to happen for her, seemingly. So I'm worn out, and then continues on in verse 12, and my Lord is old. This guy's ancient. He's 99. I'm 90. Like, this, this isn't going to happen. And she says, and now I should have pleasure. Now I'm going to have pleasure. Shall, shall I have pleasure now? What she's saying there, and the word pleasure is really important for us to understand. It kind of means two things. On one hand, it is the fulfillment of having a child. Like God finally giving them this blessing. But the word actually literally translates as sexual pleasure. They are so far beyond believing God can do this that it has likely been years since they have been intimate. And if you look at the text and you want to read into the text, which can be a little dangerous, we don't want to read too far into it, it could have been as far back as Genesis 16 and the trauma that has entered into their relationship. God is not just re- restoring a promise, he's restoring a marriage. And w- but why does she have such unbelief? Sarah either didn't believe Abraham when he told her or Abraham failed to convince her. But it seems to be the latter because if you look at verse 13, the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? She has ceased to believe. She's become cynical. And in fact, if you look at it, studies have shown that if you're a cynical person, you're five times more likely to suffer from depression. That a, that a cynical 25-year-old turns into a depressed 40-year-old. Lifespans are shorter for cynical people. And it starts from a place of being critical and seeing through everything. And, and, and if you're a person who, where everything is a sham and you see through every little thing, it's like C.S. Lewis says, if you see through everything, you actually see nothing. That's a really hopeless place to be. She's in this place of cynicism and doubt and hopelessness. And God asks her the question that pierces your hard heart. The question that reorients you to wonder, and we see this in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord. And this is a question that's meant to spark awe and wonder and draw you to worship. And this became a rallying cry for the people of Israel. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too wonderful for you. Nothing is impossible for you. What is God really getting at? He wants you to worship him because he's capable of anything. He wants you to realize that he's the God who can make an infertile 90-year-old have a baby. He's the God who can give 
sight to the blind. He's the God who can make the deaf hear and the dead come to life. He can give orphans a family. He can forgive your sins. He can, he can restore all of us once and for all. And this is meant to lead us to a place of wonder and awe and worship. And Tim Keller says that the difference between a religious person and a Christian is wonder. Are we awestruck by the wonder of what God can do for us, the impossible things that God can do? Do we believe it's doing what, worth doing whatever it takes so that our unbelieving neighbors know Jesus? Do we believe that God can provide for us? Do we believe that God can satisfy us alone? Do we believe that God can really take away our forgiveness or take away our sins through forgiveness? They can take away our shame. They can give us real peace. And he knows the content of our hearts. If you look at verse 15, it's not a barrier. Sarah denies it. She tries to backtrack. She's like, I, I didn't laugh. She tries to like gaslight God, right? That doesn't work well. I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Why does God call her out in that moment? Because he wants her to see that he doesn't want her to back away from her disillusionment or her doubt. He wants to work through it and pierce through it. He wants her to see it in light of who God is and that he is the only one who can heal it. John Piper says that the most loving thing God can do for us is to make himself indispensable to us. That only God alone can save, that only God alone can heal, that only God alone can rescue. To see that nothing is too big for him, that nothing is too incredible for him. What if, what if the season God has been bringing you through of, of longing and waiting and praying and seeking what if it's God bringing you to a place to show you that only he can do the impossible? To cause you to wonder at his grace. And, and I want this for you personally. I, I really want you to be people who are not satisfied with just living a good life. I, I want you to be people who are not just satisfied with making enough money or, or finding a good relationship or, uh, or living in such a way where Jesus is just an accessory to a good life. I want Jesus to be so central to our lives that he radically changes everything. I want to be Jesus to be so central to everyday life that everyday life is impacted and made better because you live in a way that you need him to help you do it. Are you living in a way that requires Jesus for you to live? But I also want this for City on a Hill. I've been reading a lot in the book of Matthew uh, through our, our Bible reading plan and there's this, this theme that runs through kind of toward the end as Jesus is approaching the cross. And it's about the impossibility of the work that God has called us to. You look at it in verse 19, Jesus is talking about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're astonished. And they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to save ourselves and make ourselves right with God, but that Jesus has done all the work on our behalf. He goes on further to talk about how, how the sons of Zebedee, James and John, could, are not worthy to sit at the right hand of God, but that Jesus will bear the cup of wrath so that we can have God's presence in a relationship with him. We see God opening the eyes of the blind at the end of chapter 20. And I think this is important because you, as you lead into chapter 21, what do you see? You see Jesus entering into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. We need a king ahead of us who is doing the work that we cannot. 
Are we living in such a way as a church that we need Jesus to show up or we have no hope? I'm sorry, I, I don't want to be a church that just settles for good programs and good preaching and good music and good systems. I want to be a church that, that believes the Holy Spirit is needed for us to do God's work. I want to be a church that we genuinely, genuinely will fail if the Spirit of God doesn't show up. I've been thinking about the, the revival that's happening at Asbury a lot this week. And if you're not familiar, at Asbury University, there has been this revival that is still going. It's over, going over, it's like on day nine or 10 of people just before their face worshiping God. And it started with like 20 people sitting in a sanctuary after a chapel praying. And God just un- opened the floodgates of his, of his mercy and grace. It has spread to other campuses. It's actually at my alma mater at Sanford, and this is happening. And I want God to move so badly in Boston. I, I can't explain it. I want to see genuine revival and wonder happen in our city. And, and there's some takeaways for, for you and I and for, for City on a Hill that I think are important for us to remember when it comes to desiring and longing for God to work. The first is you can't manufacture the work of God, but you can pray for it. The question is, is, have you become to a point where you're so disillusioned you've stopped praying? You stop believing that God can do a work among us or in your life that it's just not ever going to happen. Here's a reality. God wants to work more in you and make you more satisfied than you could ever imagine. He has greater plans for you than you could ever imagine. God wants to bring revival to Boston more than you could ever believe. He wants good for us more than we could ever believe. And you can't manufacture that. We saw this over and over. Abraham and Sarah tried it. They tried it through, uh, through uh, Eleazar. They tried it through Hagar. They tried it through their own efforts and their own trying. And we do the same thing. We try to make our own success and our own happiness and our own affection and our, our own love happen apart from the Lord and his ways. As a church and as people, I want us to be people who are humbly and dependently praying before God. And I have to confess, as a pastor, like I pray for our church every day. I pray for you by name every day. But one thing I've not led well in is I've not led us to corporately pray. We offer some opportunities, but we don't highlight them enough. And one thing I want to do, just as I was praying about it this week, is tonight, I just want us to pray. At 6 o'clock here at the church, we're just going to open the sanctuary. Anyone who can come, come and pray. We're Nothing fancy, no program. We're going to sing a few songs, open up time to pray, confess, read Scripture. Not trying to manufacture anything, but just believing that God will work among his people. The space downstairs will be open. If you have kids, you want to bring kids and let them run around for a little bit between praying, I want to invite you to 96 o'clock. The second thing is you can't predict when God will work, but you can't prepare for it. We, we, we have no clue when God is going to show up in a, in a way like this. When we see Jesus give the parable of the virgins in, in the Gospels in the book of Matthew, where he talks about the virgins who were waiting with oil, waiting for the bridegroom to come, and they were ready when he came. And those who were not, those who were not ready and prepared for the bridegroom had to go out and then were shut out of the blessings that came from the bridegroom. If God were to drop unbelievable favor on your life right now, would you be ready for it? Would you be able to handle it? Or would you, like Abraham, not even see it? For City on a Hill, would we be ready? Would we be ready if 150 people showed up next week asking the question, what must I do to be saved? 
I mean, would we be ready to welcome them into our community groups and people be ready to lead community groups? Would we be ready to pray for them and invite them into our homes and be hospitable? Would we be ready? We have to seek him first, seek the Lord first to prepare for the work that he may do through us. And then lastly, you can't rely on or wait for revival, but you can experience regular renewal. We, we can't wait for God to show up in this miraculous once-in-a-lifetime-if way. We have to be committed to what God is doing to, for us and through us through the everyday regular means of grace. What revival really is, is sped-up renewal. Revival is a truncated version of what God does over a lifetime. And we may experience it or we may not, but we do have the promise that God will draw us to himself in, the, in, the day, in everyday life. Look, sometimes you become friends with people, especially when you're younger and you're in college and you have kind of that, like, you know, you have that time together all the time. You can become friends with somebody in a really, really short period of time by going on a trip or being stuck in a dorm room or being you know, stuck on vacation. So you, could, you can become friends with somebody very fast, but that's not the way it happens most of the time. It doesn't always happen like that. You can also become really good friends with somebody through consistent, repetitive time together over a long period of time. God may show up in a miraculous way, and I pray that he does, but we can also be people committed to spiritual practices personally, to read God's word and to pray, to, to commit to silence and solitude and Sabbath and fasting and feasting. We have our, our, our discipleship guys in the back that walk you through all of that, so be, be sure to grab one. We can do this as a church every week as we gather to worship. We can do this in our community groups. We can do this through our friendships, through serving God together. God will shape us into the people he wants us to be to increase our wonder? Do you wonder at Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Do you believe that he can do incredible things? I want you to ask him this morning to renew your wonder at his grace. And maybe this morning you were seeing his wonder for the first time. I just pray that you would give yourself to Christ, give your life to him, believing that he has saved you through his work on the cross for you. Let's pray.